Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Red Jefferson. Uh, and they're checking my vitals. They check my heart rate, and it's 400 beats per minute. Uh, and that's when they freak the fuck out. That and more. But before that, we are so excited to tell you that we finally ra- launched. Launched. <laughs> we've raunched also, or I have at least. I've done a lot of raunching lately, but we've also launched a page for Risk on Patreon at patreon.com slash risk. That means we can create awesome things for you, rewards, for the ongoing funding of Risk that you can help be a part of. It's like Kickstarter that never ends. It allows us to keep doing what we do so much more easily. So if you go to patreon.com slash risk, that's patreon.com slash risk, and choose to donate anywhere from $1 a month to $100 a month if you want, and lots of amounts in between in exchange for access to our patrons-only content, as well as a lot of awesome prizes, including all-star episodes, storytelling lessons, Skype video chats with me, and much, much more. Of course, there will be special versions of Stance.com songs made at certain points. If you donate, you'll have the satisfaction of knowing you are contributing to everything that we do and making sure I don't die in the gutter. So go to patreon.com slash risk now and become a patron of the show and tell all your friends to do it too. Also, one great resolution you can make this new year is to maximize every minute and every dollar for your small business. And an easy way to do that is stamps.com. Think about how much time you waste going to the post office, driving there, finding parking. Stamps.com is the better way to get postage because you use what you already have, your computer and printer, to get official U.S. postage for any letter or package. Then the mailman picks it up. With Stamps.com, everything you do at the post office you can do from your desk at a fraction of the cost of one of those expensive postage meters. We use Stamps.com at Risk and the Story Studio, and we love it. And right now you can sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code RISK for this special offer. It's a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer, including postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in risk. That's stamps.com. Enter risk. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Yusef Kamal behind me now. And holy cow, 
has it been quite a f- past several days. I mean, we just got back from this exhausting but goddamn amazing tour of Texas. We went to Austin, Houston, and Dallas, and the stories and the audiences were just knock them out of the park. Great time in Texas. Great people. And then on Saturday, it's estimated that 4.5 million people marched in cities all over America. Uh, just remarkable, 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 remarkable. And if you follow me on Twitter, you'll see that I'm one of the many people who are now saying, hey, the next one of these we should do should be on April 15th on tax day. A way of insisting that the president release his taxes. If you look on Twitter for the hashtag Trump taxes March, you can start spreading the word to folks that, you know, if you think that's a good idea. Now, I know a lot of people wish that we would not talk about political things on risk in general. But here's the deal. This is a show about the well-being of people. This is a show that stands for the well-being of people. And we who create this show passionately feel right now that the well-being of people is very much at stake and that to not talk about this would be negligent. Now, when we do talk about this stuff on the show, we usually like to frame it in terms of, hey, here are ways you could become more active as a citizen if you like the sound of these organizations. And no matter how you vote, who can argue with that? The idea of people becoming more engaged as citizens with organizations that they like. So check these out. I'm going to list some. See if you like what these organizations are up to. There's knockeverydoor.org. There's resistancemanual.org. There's emilyslist.org. They're uh, committed to getting more women into positions in the government. There's swingleft.org. And finally, there's obama.org. The Obama Foundation has announced that their whole mission, their whole reason for being, is going to be helping Americans become more civically engaged as citizens. So there you go. Think positive. Get involved. Create hope for many years to come. All righty then. Now, today's episode is called Side Effects. These are three stories. We've we've done many stories on the show before about people having hilarious or ecstatic or uh, spiritual or just insane experiences on drugs. Today's are three stories of people who had rather crisis-filled experiences on drugs or with loved ones who were on drugs. So this will be a rather intense episode. These are from three different cities that we toured in. Uh, In a little bit, we're going to hear from Tanya Tamalonis, who uh, was an absolute newcomer, had never told a story on stage before, was nervous as hell, but did an amazing job. She told her story at our Risk Live show we recently did in Milwaukee. But before that, a story we recorded just a few days ago at our show in Austin, Texas. This is Red Jefferson with a story we call Death Wish.
so my story uh, starts, I guess, I'm in sixth grade. I'm in Mrs. Isle's Spanish class. I'm sitting in the back of the room uh, where uh, a bunch of desks are put together, kind of like lab tables, and I'm at a table with a bunch of my friends. Mrs. Isle leaves the room, and we were a rambunctious class, so we got out of our seats pretty soon after that. As I'm standing up, I'm pushing back my chair, putting my hands on my desk. My friend, let's call him Chris, he walks up behind me and he hits me in the back of the head. And I didn't think much of it at the time. It wasn't a shock or surprise. You know, I uh, do my usual shtick. I fall on the table. I act confused and dizzy. I'm about to make a joke about forgetting math when I turn around and my friend, let's call him Matt, he smacks me across the face. Now, that shocked me because I just got hit and I didn't even get my joke out yet. But like a good trooper, you know, I'm staying true to the bit. I, uh, I spin around and act uh, like I'm seeing stars and I walk away from that area towards the other table next to mine where some other friends of mine were and they hit me. Uh, then another hit and a slap in the face and then I, I look and it's, there's a semicircle around the back of the room with all the, the classmates. They're all watching and laughing as every single kid in that class hits me. They smack me in the face or they hit me in the back of the head. Even sweet, quiet, never said a word, Deidre gave me a hit in the back of the head. Then Miss Isle came back in the room and everyone scurried back to their seats. And I was sitting in my seat and I was just trembling. I was just raging. I was so angry. I felt uh, trapped. I felt betrayed. I felt hurt. And I had no one to feel these feelings for besides myself because it was all my fault and I let it happen. Uh, just a little backstory to give this a little context. When I was seven years old, I had this really great idea, this blockbuster idea. I was going to become fat. I was... Who doesn't enjoy yourselves? Uh, I was purposely going to become fat because it's funny, because it's a funny joke. I stuck out like a sore thumb when I was in kindergarten. I was super tall, so much so that the other kids thought I was in an older grade, wore my brother's hand-me-down clothes that still didn't fit very well because I kept outgrowing mine and my parents couldn't afford to keep buying me new ones. So and I was in a uh, house of five kids. I was the middle child, so I loved attention. And uh, I loved attention, I liked people to like me, and I liked to make people laugh. That was my way of getting people to like me. My heroes were Chris Farley, Will Sasso, John Candy, and what they all have in common? They're fat guys that fell down and it was funny. And everyone thought it was funny, they said stupid things, they were stupid and people laughed at them and they, they loved those guys. So I learned from a very early age to emulate your heroes and I stole their bit. And it worked really well. Uh, you know, I'd get invited to birthday parties, people like to hang out with me, you know. I was making fun of myself for being fat and stupid and I uh, encouraged others to hit me and then I'd do something silly, like I'd fall down in a funny way. And I got a lot of positive feedback from it. A lot of kids were laughing. I had parents that came up to me, like afterwards, they're like, oh, you should be a comedian. I'm like, thanks. I should. And I really wanted to. I thought that was like a fun option. And I thought I had a really good shtick going. 
Like it was working really well. Um, that was up until I hit around fourth grade and I hit puberty and my metabolism caught up with me. Uh, all that overeating for the joke uh, and you know, chugging sodas in class just to like show off, I started actually becoming fat and those jokes started to hurt. But I didn't stop it because I didn't know any other way. I didn't want these kids to stop liking me. Uh, I didn't understand how to talk to kids any other way, so I let it keep going. And it, and it kept getting worse and worse and worse each day, and I remember it. And after that day, that day in Mrs. Isle's Spanish class, I went to the bathroom, and I just, before I even got to the, the water fountains, I started crying. And I go in there, and I'm just crying so hard. And I'm not a, I wasn't a kid that cried a lot. Uh, now, someone plays Call Your Girlfriend by Robin, and I'm bawling my eyes out. But then, I was a tough nut to crack. I go home that day, and I go in my room, and I'm still crying, and it wasn't uh, very usual for me to just stay in my room all day. My mom comes in, she sits on my bed, and she's asking me what's wrong. And I have no idea what to tell her. I can't tell her uh, that there's kids making fun of me at school because I don't want them to get in trouble. I'm the one who's telling them. It's not their fault, and I don't want them to get in trouble, and I can't tell her that I've been getting bad grades on purpose for the past few years because of my shtick. And so I have nothing to say to her except that I'm sad, and I tell her that I want to kill myself. And my mom, sweet, she's such a sweet, doting lady. My parents are so old. They're just real old and sweet. And she doesn't know what to do with that information. She gives me a hug, and she kisses me, and she says, everything's going to be okay. Tomorrow's going to be better. You just had a bad day at school. And I let her believe that uh, because... I, I knew there's nothing that she could do to help this. When I said to her that I wanted to kill myself, that's the first time that I actually understood what I wanted to do. I knew what I had to do. I knew the way out. And due to my Catholic upbringing, uh, killing yourself is a mortal sin, so you go to hell. I don't want to go to hell, so I pray to God every single day to kill me. Uh, I pray every single night right before I go to sleep, partially because of Catholicism and, and a low-grade OCD, uh, every single day, and it gets worse and worse and worse. Uh, high school, it, it really takes a sharp turn because I go to a school where all my friends went to one, one high school, I went to the other one. So now not only did I, uh, I was real depressed and that I wasn't going to see my friends, even though they were the ones making fun of me, now I was at a school where I knew no one, and I did not know how to talk to anyone. I had no idea how to make friends without making fun of myself, and I was done making fun of myself, but I didn't know how to talk to people, and I tried. I tried at this high school. I joined the wrestling team uh, in an effort to meet people, and I love wrestling. Who doesn't love pro wrestling? Um, that's the wrestling I'm talking about. Um, and uh, they don't like me. They don't understand me. They can't relate to me. And it makes, only makes things worse uh, to the point where I miss one of the meets uh, because my mom's car breaks down and I couldn't make it and I couldn't tell anyone that I wasn't going to be there because I wasn't friends with any of the kids. And I became petrified of seeing them again. Uh, this was freshman year of high school. That last semester of high school, I missed 28 days uh, because I was actively avoiding these wrestlers and these kids at school 
because I didn't know how to talk to them. I didn't know how to deal with them. And I gave up. I was pretty resolute in the fact that I, uh, I needed to die. And God wasn't getting it done fast enough. So I make a point to try and kill myself by overeating. Because that's the only way I knew how to cope with things or the way I made friends. It's going to be the way I end friends, I guess. And I just overeat. I eat so much food. I eat Chinese food every day. I, eat two to f- I drink two to four liters of Coca-Cola a day. I end up gaining 100 pounds in a year's time. By the time I'm 16 years old, I'm 328 pounds. And my school's freaking out. <laughs> the district doesn't know what to do with me. They send me to homeschoolers. They bring me to an alternative high school. And I begrudgingly go to uh, you know, uh, make my parents happy. And they send me to a bunch of psychiatrists and counselors. They pump me full of medication for depression, anxiety, insomnia, ADD medication. Uh, The doctor I saw, who will remain nameless, even though I would like to say his name, he's a quack in Clifton, New Jersey. (laughs) He uh, prescribes me uh, Focalin for my ADD. Focalin is a long-lasting ADHD drug, and he gives me double the maximum dosage. And he prescribes it to me every single day. And I don't blink at this at the time because I see this as continuing my means to an end. I'm 328 pounds and he has me taking double the maximum dosage you give in an adult, a stimulant. I like my odds. I, so I take it every day for seven months. December rolls by and I'm at this new school where I'm not talking to anybody and uh, you have missed a lot of school that year. Uh, just because I didn't want to go. I am sitting in bed at 2 a.m. in the morning, and I'm watching TV, and my heart starts acting up. Uh, This uncomfortable feeling in my chest. Uh, The best way I could describe it is if you've ever touched the tower uh, on a computer, and you know when it's on, it has that humming feeling, like the humming feeling, the vibration. Uh, That's what it felt like in my chest. And uh, I'm excited. Like, this is, this is endgame right now. Like, I'm on my way. This is the heart attack or stroke that I was looking for. So I get up and go to the kitchen to eat something because goals. And I'm probably in the kitchen right now, like, looking for something to eat. My dad comes in because he keeps very weird hours as well. He sees me up and he sees me acting funny and he asks me what's wrong. And stupidly, I let him know that my chest is acting up and he... Again, my parents are so old and sweet. He's just like, oh, God, no, no. What, what do you mean your heart's acting up? Uh, how long has it been like this? Do you need to go to the hospital? Joan! And he calls for my mom, wakes her up, and she comes out. Like, oh, what's wrong? Oh, his heart's acting up. Oh, my, I'm to get to take him to the hospital? He doesn't want to go. You got to go to the hospital. And they, I, I love them, and I don't want them to fret. So I go. And in all honesty, I felt I did enough damage already. So whatever they do at the hospital, it's inevitable what I want. We go to, we're driving there. My dad's driving and his leg is shaking the entire time because he's nervous. We uh, go into the emergency room. It's empty. Hospital's dead quiet. We go up to the counter and I let her know what's going on, the, the person at the counter. And uh, she's like, okay, we'll fill out this and we'll see you in a little bit. And we're there for 25 minutes in this empty emergency room, waiting room. Uh, no one's calling us. They eventually do. They don't seem too worried about any of this at all. It's like they've seen it before. I go in. 
uh, and they're checking my vitals. They check my heart rate, and it's 400 beats per minute. Uh, and that's when they freak the fuck out. They get me on a gurney, and they rush me across to this other room, this like emergency center, emergency room. They got a bunch of machines, and they, they start strapping IVs to me, one in each arm and one in each hand. They've got all different types of fluids entering my body, and they're asking me a bunch of questions. They're asking my dad about my medical history. They're asking me if this has happened before. How long has this been going on tonight? I hear them in the hallway uh, freaking out as the nurses ask me questions freaking out. They're really nervous that I'm going to die right there. Meanwhile, I'm having a ball. I know I'm going to die now, and I'm seeing this beautiful episode of ER right in front of me. They're all freaking out. They're running uh, all over the place. I'm excited about this. Uh, then the doctor comes in. She comes in, and in a very grave way, she's like, we have two different options. Uh, first option is we give you the serum that's going to stop and restart your heart. And hopefully when it restarts, it starts back into a normal rhythm. And if that doesn't work, we're going to use the defibrillator pads, you know, the clear thing. And I asked what the second option is. And she's like, oh, we just go straight to the defibrillator pads. Uh, I don't, while I do want to die, I don't want to be uncomfortable. So I offer uh, the first option because that just sounds cool. She uh, has me sign this waiver, uh, waiving all my rights if I, for some reason my heart doesn't start back up. And she leaves the room. All of a sudden, all these doctors and orderlies walk in the room about 12 of them. They walk in and they all wrap around my bed. Uh, then that doctor comes back in with a syringe, a clear liquid syringe, and she puts it into my drip, injects it, and I feel this cool, I feel enter my arm and it feels very cold. And that coldness spreads up my arm and into my chest, and then into my legs and into my neck. And that coldness was my heart stopping. It felt like someone popped me and I was deflating. It felt like I was melting into the bed. And all I remember is like this intense pressure in my head and behind my eyes as I'm staring up at these doctors and orderlies just looking down on me with such calm faces. Like they're about to perform a seance. And they're all looking at this like they've seen it a million times before. And it felt like a few minutes, but it was really only 10 seconds. And then all of a sudden, like Wolverine, I shoot out of the bed. All these doctors and orderlies were in there holding down my chest and arms and legs. And I was on my fingertips and toes trying to get out of this bed. I was a very large guy. And uh, I eventually calmed down. That doesn't fix the issue. Uh, they're about to do the defibrillator pads. Uh, right when, and then it just snaps back into a regular rhythm. Uh, they don't know why. They, the, the first option should have worked fine. But it, I guess my body knew I didn't want to be that uncomfortable, so it just gave me a break. I look at the doctor's report afterwards, and they talk about the 16-year-old morbidly obese kid in jovial spirits that had a bout of atrial fibrillation, which is, well, I'm one of the youngest guys on the East Coast to have it. Uh, it's usually reserved for senior citizens and people with cocaine addictions. And that, that, that was the story of how I died. I, uh, 
missed a lot of school that week. I went back the following week, and my teacher, Sandra, she, and I call her Sandra because we were cool, we were pretty cool. She asked me what, uh, where was I? And I told her I died, and as a joke. And I tell her the story in class, and a bunch of other kids heard that story too. And they liked it, they thought it was cool. I, was, I went to an alternative high school, so there's a bunch of morbid kids in there, and they thought it was really cool. They start asking me questions like, how did it feel to die, or uh, are you better? Is there, are you gonna get a surgery? What's going on? And they start talking to me. They actively started talking to me. They started to be friends with me, not because of me making fun of myself or doing something stupid, because of a, a, a cool story that I had or they thought it was interesting. And that's the first time in my life that I had friends like that. Friends that respected me and treated me well and wanted to know more about me. Uh, not saying that those friends from grade school didn't, they just didn't know any better and I didn't know any better. And that changed me. From then on, I, I started talking to people and showing respect for myself and and treating myself with dignity and expecting that from others. And now, I, when I was 16 years old, I didn't think I was going to make it to 18. I was confident that I wasn't. My, I was going a downhill slope. And now I'm 27 years old. I'm a comedian. I go on stage and lose my dignity on a nightly basis. <laughs> And, and I'm able to get up from it. And I, I have friends that treat me with respect. And I have a job that I'm able to keep. I, I, have, I have friends and I, I... None of this was possible for, before that. Yeah, I get sad some days and I get real depressed and I don't think that's gonna go away. But the thing that kind of picks me up and the thing that gets me by is I'm so excited and entertained by how often I'm able to prove myself wrong. Thank you. Side effects may include unpleasant taste, headache, dizziness, and morning drowsiness. Patients also reported trouble sleeping and vivid, unusual, or strange dreams. Diarrhea, nausea, upper respiratory tract infection, and headache. Call your doctor if you have fever, stiff muscles, and confusion, as these may be signs of a life-threatening reaction. Walking, eating, driving, or engaging in other activities while asleep without remembering it the next day have been reported. Other side effects including headache, diarrhea, indigestion, and rash were generally mild. In some cases, extreme high blood sugar can lead to coma or death. Some people can have allergic or serious skin reactions, some of which can be life-threatening. Hi guys. Alright, so it is my freshman year of college. All I want to do is go home and talk to my mom. I'm super stressed out because the time when I'm supposed to be finding myself, exploring, and whatever you do as a new college student, I am spending all of that time worrying about my current boyfriend. I am thinking about, is he staying out of trouble? What is he doing? Do I need to be worried about him? And it's really messing me up with the balance of having to worry about college and having to worry about him. So I 
have a good relationship with my mom and I need her to tell me what to do. Now, me and Andrew met my junior year of high school. We started dating then, and he, I knew that he was into shit before I kind of started talking to him, and I loved that because I lived in a small Midwestern town that it was kind of robotic. You had to get good grades and follow the rules and get into a good school and then get a good job, and I needed some deviation from that situation, and he was that deviation. I loved going on drug deals with him. I absolutely loved hanging out with his delinquent friends. It made me feel less robotic, so that's what it was, and we had a pretty good relationship. He had this ridiculous ability in the darkest of times to make me crack a smile. I could be absolutely furious at him and he would be able to make me laugh and I'd forget everything. And he also had this look in his eye that was like, please stay here, please take care of me. And I trusted him. I took care of him when he needed a ride, when he was too fucked up to drive somewhere. I took care of him when he followed me to college and needed a new computer. I bought him one. And I trusted him when he told me that weed was the only thing he smoked and he's dealt. So that was that. I took care of him, but lately it just felt like he was so needy when we went away to school together. And I needed to get away from that. So here we are in my best friend's boyfriend's car. It's me, my best friend Kayla, her boyfriend Jack, and of course Andrew. Me and my boyfriend Andrew are sitting in the back seat and his phone is sitting in the middle seat between us. And about halfway through, all of a sudden, his phone lights up and vibrates. Now, being the joking person that I am, I grab his phone with no intention of actually looking through it and say, got it, something snaps in him immediately. And he moves faster than I have ever seen this kid move before, mostly because he's always high, but moves faster than he ever has. And he lunges at me. And he has never been the one to put his hands on me negatively, ever. Even our big blow up fights, he has never been that type of person. So he lunges at me, and so I crouch down in between the front seat and the back seat, and I am not letting go of this phone because I'm like, something has to be on here. He's too needy to cheat on me. It has to be about drugs. It absolutely has to be about drugs, and I need to know what it is. So I'm down, I'm crouched, I'm covering my head, this kid is punching and scratching and pulling at me to get his phone away. He is basically beating the shit out of me in the backseat, and I can hear my best friend and her boyfriend yelling at each other, and Jack's like, Kayla, pull the fuck over, what are you doing? And she's like, I don't know what you want me to do, there's no exit. And I'm thinking, Kayla, are you fucking serious? I'm getting the shit beat out of me in the backseat, just pull over on the side of the road. And eventually, she finds an exit, she pulls over, I struggle to open the door and get away from Andrew. And I look up and I see a McDonald's, so I sprint as fast as I possibly can towards this McDonald's barefoot. I swing the door open, bunch of people looking at me, and I go into the women's bathroom, I was like, there's no way he's gonna come in here. I lock myself in a stall with his phone still. Not later than three seconds, he bursts the door open of the women's bathroom. And I try to stifle my breathing, hoping that somehow he didn't know I was in there. He 
starts crawling over, not under, the bathroom stall and eventually gets in there. And when he gets in there, he throws me up against the wall and pins me there and rips the phone out of my hand. I just completely crumble from that point because after he ripped that phone out of my hand, he just turned and walked away. I just say, what are you hiding? What can't you tell me? I don't understand. So from there, the rest of the ride was pretty much a blur. I know my friend eventually came and peeled me off of the floor, put me in the back seat, and she sat with me. At one point, I heard Andrew saying to Jack, can you take me to this address? And I'm like, whose address is that? And he's like, it's just a friend's. And I was like, well, if it's a friend, then why don't I know who it is? And he's completely stone cold, ignores me. And so I say, listen, if you come back with me, we can work this out. We can figure something out. But if you go to this house, I never want to see you again. He doesn't say anything again. Eventually, Jack interjects and is like, dude, where am I taking you? And he quietly just says, take me to that address that I gave you. And I feel like my world is coming, crashing down. And eventually, we drop him off. I hear Kayla say something along the lines of like, he's been lying to you for two and a half years. It's fine. You don't need him. And Jack doesn't say anything. So that makes me think that he knows what's going on. So later that night, I head over to my friends, try to stick to what I said, and we're supposed to go in the hot tub. And not later than 30 minutes, I get a phone call, panicking. It's his brother, his younger brother, and he says, Andrew just called me, he's super fucked up, I have no idea where he is, I think he needs a ride, do you know where he is? And I just, I'm pissed, and I give him Jack's phone number and say he has the address that he dropped him off at, and I hang up. A little bit later, I get a text message from him that says, I just got Andrew, he's so fucked up, I'm nervous, can you please meet us at our house, our parents aren't home. Me not knowing what to expect, and I'm a little worried myself, I go there. I get there and knock on the door and his brother answers the door and he says, I can't even get him out of the car, he's still in the car. So I walk over to the car, open the back door and his body slumps toward me. And I swear to God, I thought he was dead at first. And I lift up to his chin and I see his eyes and they're super glazed over and he doesn't know who he is, he doesn't know who I am, he doesn't know where he is. And then this heat just rises in me. And I'm like, oh, shit. This kid is overdosing. He is overdosing on heroin right now. You are sitting here feeding your addiction to take care of this kid while he fed his addiction to heroin. You fucking idiot. And I hate to say it, but at that time, my addiction came and rose back up inside me. And for a split second, I thought, I just want to engulf this hopeless kid that feels like he needs to do heroin to get through his life in my arms and take care of him. But then I say, no, fuck that, Tanya. You need to stop putting up with this bullshit. And I drag him out of the car. And he stumbles backwards. And I say, you're high as a kite. He says, no, I'm not. And at that point, I laugh, like maniacal, evil Corella DeVille, laugh, because I cannot believe that this kid is keeping it up when he is this high. 
I am furious and I feel my hand come up and I punch him as hard as I possibly can in between his eyes and he stumbles back and I am shocked because that's the first person I've ever punched in my entire life but I am so happy that it was him. <laughs> he stumbles back and he's like, what, what the fuck, Tanya? What the fuck? Right after I did, his brother walks out because he hears it and he's like, Tanya, I don't care what you do to him, just come inside so we don't get the cops called on us. At that moment, I think, you know what, I'm just going. I'm turning around, I'm done, I'm going. But then I'm like, eh, this kid deserves a little more of my anger. So I walk in behind him, his brother helps him into the house, I turn him around again, and I punch him again. <laughs> And I feel this pent-up frustration leave my body of two and a half years of him holding me back. Two and a half years of him telling me that he is projectile vomiting randomly because he just has a weak stomach. Or his eyes are closing at my family dinner because he's just exhausted from school and work and football. Or the fact that when he got pulled over two months earlier with a friend, that heroin wasn't his. It was his friend's. I am just so done with this bullshit. When I punched him the second time, I actually knocked out his right earring and it hit the floor. It sounded like a penny when it hits the floor and he heard it. He was so high that he thought that I knocked his tooth out. And he was like, oh, you knocked my tooth out, and laughed again, of course. And then he just started puking everywhere. And on cue, his mom, stepdad, and seven-year-old brother walk into the door. That look on that seven-year-old's face was extremely painful. And it's at that moment that I thought, what the fuck am I doing here? I'm not supposed to be here. I am awesome. I am successful. I get good grades. I go to a Big Ten college. What am I doing here? Why am I doing this? Why am I putting up with this? And that moment became kind of a blur of questions and yelling and crying. And I don't even know if they asked me what was going on, but I remember just saying, he's overdosing on heroin. I can't do this anymore. And I walked out that door, and I truly felt a weight lift off of my chest. Now, I'd love to tell you guys that I never heard from him again after that. Not true. Got numerous calls, texts, calls from jail, calls from friends saying he was looking for me. And I still worry about running into him today. But the worst day of my life became the most eye-opening, wonderful experience of my life because I am successful and I am fucking strong and I get the respect I deserve from my beautiful fiance who happens to be a woman and is in the audience today and she will tell you firsthand that I don't put up with anyone's bullshit anymore. Thank you.
This is Risk. This is Amos Lee behind me now. And we just heard from Tanya Tomalonis, who told that story at our Milwaukee show last December. Before that, a little interstitial from our episode editor, Jeff Barr. And I want to talk about a wonderful new sponsor of ours, Zola.com. You know, wedding planning can be so exciting but so nerve-wracking at the same time sometimes, right? Zola.com is a one-stop registry. Couples can register for the brands they want on an easy-to-use platform with the ability to personalize everything with notes and photos. It's a registry you can make feel like you. Zola works directly with over 450 brands, so a happy couple can find whatever they want all in one place. Brands include KitchenAid, SoulCycle, Le Crusette, Sonos, Ralph Lauren, and more. Couples can have gifts shipped now, later, or exchange them for something they'll really love. Multiple guests can contribute to bigger ticket gifts. Couples will receive 10% off the entire site for a year to complete their registry. So remember, Zola is the wedding registry that'll do anything for love. All the gifts, experiences, and funds you want all in one place. Risk listeners receive $50 when you register and use Zola if you just visit zola.com slash risk for details. That's Z-O-L-A dot com slash risk. Also, I know a lot of people are experiencing the winter blahs right about now, and that's why I want to remind you about our sponsor, Talkspace. If you've ever thought about going to therapy, but thought it was just too inconvenient, too expensive, too embarrassing to be going into a place, try Talkspace. Talkspace is the online therapy company. They make it easy to connect with a licensed therapist, handpicked just for you, for as little as as $32 a week. Using Talkspace, you can text, audio, and video message your therapist as much as you want. Your Talkspace therapist can listen to you, vent about work or family or relationships, uh, help put you on the path to a happier life. To sign up or learn more, go to Talkspace.com risk. And as a special offer for our listeners, you can use the coupon code RISK to get $30 off your first month and show your support for the podcast. Talkspace, therapy for how we live today. 
Now, we have one last story on the show today. It comes from our recent remarkable show that we had in Detroit. This is one hell of a wild ride. It comes to us from Janelle Bowers, and it's a story we call Lost Weekend. are wonderful look at this giant crowd um so oh my gosh you guys have told such like genuine really beautiful stories and i'm just gonna drop some shit show on you real quick so let's just get it down in the gutter really fast okay so in the fall of 2005 i woke up in a public park in my underwear it may seem a little funny. It wasn't all that funny. Um, I kind of, I don't know if like waking up is really what you could call it. Because, you know, when you're really fucked up, I don't know that you really like wake up so much as like just go like, oh, fuck. Okay, so that happened. Um, and, and like my face was all wet and I was really fucking cold because I was in my underwear in a public park in the fall. I was like, oh, fuck, I don't know where I am. I don't know where my clothes are. I had glasses at a point in my life. I also had shoes. I don't know where those are. I think I was here with people. I don't think they're anywhere. So I started searching around, around my like general vicinity to like find, like did I just fucking like think it was bedtime and take my clothes off or like what? I couldn't find any of them. Uh, so I start searching around. I can't find anything at all. And so I start scanning my body, like this sort of like animal panic sets in in me, right? Where I go, okay, something is obviously not right. I need to scan my body. Like, is everything where it should be? And I discovered the entire left side of my body is covered in just giant purple knotted bruises as though someone had been kicking me, like, repeatedly. And I, I'm, you know, sort of scanning my body more, and I just had this horrible fucking taste in my mouth. It's like, like a bottle of codeine and a bunch of digested pharmaceuticals and malt liquor and whiskey. And I look around, and I realize I'm in, like, a drainage ditch, like a culvert a sort of dry one, and I, I see this hill above, uh, in front of me, and I, I go out ab- above the hill, and I realize, like, oh, my God, I know where I am. I'm in Diablo Park, which was the park of, like, so many teenage degenerate memories, right? So, like, you know, making out with people and, like, just forming these, like, strong, young punk bonds with, like, other mishappened children with shitty parents, And I was kind of relieved to see that I knew where I was, but still, like, I didn't know how I got there. So I started to walk through the park, and I remembered, like, oh, okay, okay, I was here with Joe. Joe was my high school sweetheart. And by sweetheart, like, that's a pretty liberal term in the sense that, like, I would walk around high school with, like, a 
Dickie's jacket that said, like, I don't care about you, fuck you, on the back of it. And he had, like, a mohawk. And we were, like, really punk. And we would go to, like, the cheerleader parties, and I would have, like, vodka in my back pocket and, like, spit on their cars. Um, So sweetheart is, like, maybe really not the right way to put it. But we hadn't seen each other in a while, and um, he had been hopping trains, and I had, like, gotten married to a woman, and we got together in this park that we had grown up in, and, um, you know, he was with some of his traveling buddies, and we were kind of doing it for old time's sake, you know, but we discovered that we both were just total opiate addicts, like, in the time that we had been apart, which was fucking awesome, because we could party together, and so, you know, we did. And we played Edward Forty Hands. Does anybody know what Edward Forty Hands is? That's where you duct tape 40 ounces to your hands, and then you drink that shit really fast, because you have to pee, like, a lot, right? So, um, so we did that. And then we, like, robbed a bottle of cough syrup with codeine from his mom's house, and we drank that. And then we, like split a couple of bottles of whiskey and I had like 100 milligrams of oxy in me which was the thing that I did every day because I was a junkie and so I I needed to like get to something to save me right so I go and I have to cross this like really major suburban thoroughfare it would be like crossing eight mile it's like this you know there's like a strip mall and then like a four lane road and then the suburb, like the subdivision that, that Joe lives in, that I've been in a thousand times before. So I like, I'm in total panic. But I don't remember any emotions at this moment. It could be that I was super fucked up, but it's also that like, I just was really trained to be on survival mode. Like, check out, disassociate, and fucking survive. And so that's what I did. And I knew where I was. So I like knew I could get to something. And I had a car. I knew I had a car. So I go to this subdivision, but it's one of these fucking subdivisions. You guys know these places, right? Where, like, all of the houses, they look exactly the fucking same. So, like, if you're wasted and you have no glasses, what do you do? Because it's like, you know, there's this one here. It's like eggshell with blue shutters and the one next to it with slate gray paint and ivory shutters. And you, like, don't fucking know where you are and so I go up to this house and I go to open the door and it's like not opening which is weird because Joe's house is always open so I like fucking pound on the door like the police at four in the morning and this old man answers the door and I'm standing there in my underwear covered in bruises like doing this number you know doing the like hard swerve because Edward Forty Hands (laughs) And I go like, oh, fuck, and I like, run down the road. And I, I wander around the subdivision for probably a solid 10 minutes. I cannot find this house. And the further I get into it, like, the more lost I get because everything looks the same. So I wonder, I, go, I think, okay, okay, you know where you are. Just go back to the liquor store you were at last night. And, like, you were in there. You looked really normal you'll be able to figure it out. Right? Right. Uh, They'll help you. Like, they'll know that you're in trouble because you look straight fucked right now. So I walk out onto the road, and this dude in a truck pulls over, and he's like, hey, 
you really look like you need some help. And I'm like, fuck you, man. I'm like a feral cat, right? Like I'm in survival mode. And I'm like, fuck you, leave me alone. You're not gonna rape me right now. I'm in my underwear and I'm super fucked up and I don't know where I am and I don't know where my clothes are. And I started to kind of figure like, probably I got robbed, right? Like probably there was like a huge homeless population in this park and like I probably just, I got robbed. And they probably felt really justified because I looked like this, like, you know, total hipster fuck, like, slumming it in this park. Um, So the guy's like, no, I get it. Like, yeah, you're scared. I understand. You can sit in the back. I'll leave the doors unlocked. I'll only go 10 miles an hour, but you really look like you need some help. And so I, I acquiesce, and I get in the car, and he drives me around the subdivision, but I'm still wasted. I have no idea where I am. The houses still look the same. He can't help me. He gives me a sweatshirt, and he's like, I'm really sorry. Like, look, I just, I have to go to work. So he drops me off at the liquor store. So I now have the dude's sweatshirt, so that's cool. I'm not totally naked. Uh, and I go into this liquor store, but it's like 5.30 in the morning, so there are all these people, like, they're getting ready to go to work, right? So they're like, buying some like defrosted donuts and like some coffee and stuff and I walk in like I'm totally normal like I'm wearing shoes and like pants and all and I'm not covered in bruises on this whole side and I stand in line and like people are coming in they're like like, bing bong and like fluorescent lights and people like standing there like I'm not looking like a complete freak and I get up to the counter and I'm really I'm really scared, but I'm, like, hopeful because this is the guy that served me last night. Like, he saw me. He saw me in this, like, buttoned-up suit coat and, like, some nice jeans, you know? And with, like, these four huge, obviously, like, train-hopping kids, like, obviously I'm in trouble. Something is very wrong. Like, you'll help me, right? No. Uh, So I go up to the guy, and I'm like, look, I'm really in trouble. Like, can I please just use your phone? I just need to get home. I'm, I'm on homing pigeon mode at this point. And there's a cordless phone between us, and he puts his hand over the cordless phone, and he pulls it to him, and he says, absolutely fucking not. No. There's a guy behind me, and he's like, come on, man! Like, what the fuck are you talking about? So he gives me a quarter, because this is in the time of payphones. So I ran to the payphone, and of course the thing ate my money. Um, I'm trying to call my wife to, like, come and get me or help me or tell me how to get to someone's house, like, help me do anything. There's this girl panhandling, which in retrospect, like, I think she was wearing my fucking clothes. Like, I'm pretty sure she had my clothes on. But I was, like, too wasted to go, like, bitch, you're wearing my clothes and, like, I'm standing here in no clothes. And I have a lot of bruises, which you probably did. And you probably felt really good about doing it. So I'm like, can I please, like, in desperation, like, please, please, can I, can I, have to, can I just have a quarter? Like, I'm, I'm in trouble. I don't know what's happened to me. Please. And she says, I don't even have a fucking home. I have nothing for you. And I think it was, like, nice guy day at the liquor store that day or something. Because there's this other guy, and he's like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, here is a quarter. So I go, and I, like, use the payphone. Of course, it goes straight to my wife's voicemail because, you know, junkie wife, they don't answer the phone at 5 o'clock in the morning. So the sun's kind of coming up, and I'm, like, getting my wherewithal about me a little bit more, and I... I think, okay, I think I can do this. And I wander back over 
to the subdivision, and I think with the, the sun being up a little bit more and I'm starting to sober up a little bit, I'm able to find Joe's house. And I see my car, and it's like, yes, my car, okay. I go into the house, and there's my purse. My purse is there. It wasn't wrong. It wasn't stolen. I was really smart to have left it. I try to, like, kick Joe. Like, what the fuck happened to me? Like, we're punks because we don't leave each other. Like, we are family, you fuck. Why did you leave me? And he's just like, I have no idea what you're talking about. So I'm like a homing pigeon. I, like, get my key, and I get in the car, and I'm not in any kind of condition to be driving, like, whatsoever. So I get in the car... I don't have my glasses on, and I'm driving, and I'm like, yes, this horrible experience is over, and I, and then I miss my, like, exit, right, because fucked up and no glasses, so I go to, like, turn around, and it's this really sharp 45-degree turn, but there's none of those, like, really, you know those lovely, like, yellow signs that say, like, hey, you're going to turn really sharp really soon. There were none of those, and so I just fucking wreck my car, like, into the median, and it totally pops my front tire. And I have not lost it up until this point. Like, seriously, I'm, like, on this, like, sort of dissociated, like, mission. And when that happened, I, like, hit my head against the steering wheel, and I was like, fuck. And I, like, cried about three tears. And I was like, bitch, you are a Girl Scout, and you know how to change a fucking tire. You're not giving up now. And so I pull over. There's like a little parking ride for the light rail. And I go to unlock the trunk and the lock is seized. And it's like the shitty old 90s Toyota Tricel that doesn't have like an internal pop thing. You know, the little button that you push and the trunk pops. Yeah, it was none of that. The lock was seized. So I had to rip the fucking back seat out of my car with my bare hands. Like, or just rip it out. Just like incredible, like opiate junkie hulk like out of my car and I get I fish the tools out and the and the tire and I find like a pair of boxer shorts and like one tennis shoe right it's like a one adidas shell toe I find it and I change the tire like a boss like I'm like yes you know how to do this I change my tire I'm like driving home but I totally didn't like tighten the lug nuts enough have you ever driven like that right where it's just like don't, 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 the whole way. And you're, I was just like, fuck it. I don't know what that noise means, but we're going to figure that shit out later. So I like get home and I look like a crazy person. Like literally my whole side is like covered in purple bruises. I'm wearing one tennis shoe still. I didn't take the shoe off because fuck that. Like we're getting home. And like some, bo- I don't even know whose boxer shorts they were. They were just like in my car. So. And then this stranger's sweatshirt. I'm like pounding on the door of my house because my keys got stolen in my jacket. My wife answers the door and she's like, what the fuck happened to you? And I fell apart. I just totally collapsed. And I sobbed and I tried to tell her what happened and I didn't know. And then later that day, I talked to Joe and he explained to me that well, you see, we were super fucked up and we were hanging out in this park and then the cops showed up. And so we scattered like we did as teenagers and I went to a teenage hiding place. Just totally true. That was our teenage hiding place. It was covered in graffiti. It was hidden. But I fell asleep and then I got rolled by a bum. 
And then I took another 100 milligram oxy, and I went and I climbed in the bath, and I sat there and I curled up into this little ball, and I tried to scrub myself of the night, and I was so scared. I was so, so scared. And I realized that I was really lucky that all I had lost was my clothes. And I got out of the bath, and I looked at myself in the full-length mirror in the bathroom, and I was 50 pounds overweight. I hadn't read a book or gone on a walk in six months. I was covered in bruises. I was really scared. And I knew, I knew in that moment that I was, as someone who grew up with abuse and substance abuse, that I was breaking a promise to my eight-year-old self that I would never be like this. And I knew in that moment that I did not have control over this. And that if I didn't stop right then, it would kill me. I knew that. And I don't know why I knew that, but I did. There was like some pinprick in the world that like the light had shone through for the first time. And my ability to survive in that moment and just keep going, I felt like I couldn't deny that deep sense of like needing to survive anymore. And I stopped. That was 11 years ago. That was the last time that I used... was going to be, thank you, that was going to be the end of that story, but last night, I got a call from Joe. I haven't talked to him in about a year. Joe didn't stop using. He spent the better part of the last 10 years being a junkie. And he called me last night because for the last six months, he's only used five times, and he's trying to figure out how to stay clean. And I am the only person in our circle that stopped. I lost my wife because she didn't stop using. I left my hometown. And he called me because he needed to know how to do it, what the next step was. And we talked about purpose and meaning in life and making meaningful commitments to yourself and to other people. And talking to him made me both very, very sad and so grateful that that whoever it was that kicked me in my sleep and took all of my clothes, that that's what they did. Thank you.
till four in the morning plus some So I take a long trip And then I take out my song scripts When I sit down to write I always look to God to help me see the light But I know that I ain't been living right And I know that I can live by the night But it's so hard for me just to put it down So hard for me to pass up the crown When it's been passed down, I'm sitting on the throne And sometimes I feel in this world I've just been thrown in Not been shown in And I don't know when to slow it down But I can't go on like this Knowing that I'm just getting by Knowing that I'm just getting high Can't go on like this Knowing that I'm just getting high Can't go on like this Knowing that I'm just getting high But this is the life, 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 the life This is the life, life, the life, life, the life, yeah This is the life, life, the life, life, the life They tell me it's the life, life, the life, life, the life That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Gary Clark Jr. behind me now. That was Janelle Bowers we just heard from our show in Detroit. And don't forget, you can find our Patreon page at patreon.com slash risk and help support us, help keep all this going and get wonderful prizes in the process. That's patreon.com slash risk. Support for Risk also comes from Talkspace. Talkspace is the online therapy company that believes that therapy should be affordable, confidential, and convenient. Join over 500,000 people who have used Talkspace for online therapy with their licensed therapist. For a special offer, visit talkspace.com slash risk. That's T-A-L-K-S-P-A-C-E dot com slash risk. Now, here is where Risk is appearing live next. On January 25th, we are back in Brooklyn at the Bell House. On January 27th, we're in San Francisco at the Swedish American Hall. On February 17th, we're in Carborough, North Carolina, and we're still taking pitches for that one. The theme that night is, what? So pitch us at risk-show.com slash submissions for our February 17th Carborough show. On February 18th, we're back in Los Angeles at the bootleg. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. But this is the life, 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 the life, yeah. This is the life, life, the life, the life, the life, yeah. This is the life, life, the life, life, the life. This is the life, life, the life, life, the life, life, the life, the life. But I can't go on like this, knowing that I'm just getting by. Can't go on like this, knowing that I'm just getting high. Can't go on like this, knowing that I'm just getting high. Can't go on like this, knowing that I'm just getting high. This is my life. 
बदला है